Welcome to the Data Lab Podcast. I'm Brian Hills, and in this episode, I speak to Oliver Smith, who is the Strategy Director at the Health Moonshot in Telefonica Innovation Alpha. Oliver joined us for DataFest 19, our annual festival of data innovation held across Scotland, and he gave a keynote at Data Summit on the data ethics when principles meet reality. So in this podcast, we covered the discussion around Oliver's presentation and keynote at Data Summit. We also talk about what the health moonshot is at Telefonica Alpha, and we also focus on the intersection of tech, design, and research in helping them achieve their mission. I hope you enjoy this episode. So welcome, Ollie, to Data Lab Podcast. Thank you. We're also Edinburgh and first day at Data Summit. So uh, thank you very much for taking the time to do this before your talk. Pleasure, real pleasure. So we use this as a practice run, okay? <laughs> exactly, I need the practice for sure. <laughs> so welcome and thank you very much for your time. Um, so I wanted to start with just an overview of what Telefonica Alpha is and what your role are, if you could just give an overview of that. Sure, 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 no problem. Telefonica Alpha is uh, Telefonica's long-term disruptive innovation unit. And it's, I always think it's a nice story. The, the, the guy who is currently chief executive of, of Telefonica, um, Jose Maria Alvarez Payetti, a few years ago, he went to Silicon Valley, he went to Google X, and uh, he went to a few other places. And particularly at Google X, he said, this is great, I want one of these. And so he came back to his uh, in the headquarters and he said, I, I, we need something like Google X, we're missing long-term innovation. And uh, some of his staff said, that's lovely, but you can't have one because your company won't let you innovate that way. He said, okay, well, I'd lo- I still like one anyway, so work out how to do this. And what came out of all that thinking was Alpha, which is a separate company, wholly owned by Telefonica, but it's uh, separate in the way that it operates, the culture, uh, how, we, um, how we hire people, how we work. Uh, and we are, we are funded to operate with, with basically patient capital. And what, what Alpha does is, is, is moonshots, which all sounds very Silicon Valley-esque. And what a moonshot is basically is you take a problem that affects hundreds of billions of people across the world and hasn't yet been solved. And it hasn't been solved because there's some technical challenge at the heart of it. And the idea behind Alpha is that you try and solve that technical challenge and you build a business. So you do good for the world because you are, uh, you are solving that problem for hundreds of millions of people, but then you also create a business at the, at the same time. And for Telefonica, that, that's great because they're searching for new sources of value all the time. They've got short and medium term innovation, but they didn't have this, this longer term. So they set up Alpha and each, each moonshot has five to seven years to, to do its work, to try and solve that problem and try and create a business. I work in the first moonshot, which is health, and uh, Alpha was set up about 2016, and the health moonshot started around the, the, around the same time as that, and I'm the strategy director in, in the health moonshot. So the team will, will tell me that my job is basically to just do PowerPoint slides, and, um, which is really kind of them. It's a, it's a little bit more involved in that. What I, what I do is I um, really pay a lot of attention to the long-term mission, mission and vision and try and be really uh, clear about where we're going and what it's going to take to get there, what needs to be true to get there, and then help shape the work of the various teams in, in the short term, in the medium term. 
And as a result of that, I also get a lot into our partnership work, thinking about our business models. Uh, and as well, I, I do a lot of thinking about ethics as a core part of what we do. And that's, that's, that's the topic of my, my presentation today. Fantastic. Okay, so I won't call you a PowerPoint Jedi, strategy director. No, no. <laughs> yeah. thank you. So, so we'll get into ethics shortly. So in terms of the health moonshot, what is the, the mission or what is the thing that you guys are looking at just now, the really difficult problem that you are going to crack? Exactly. We are looking at chronic disease. This probably isn't a surprise. Lots of people are looking at chronic diseases. It's a huge challenge across the world. It costs five trillion across the world. It's, it's, it's so enormous. And the, the view we have on it is that when you look at chronic diseases, a lot of them are massively driven by your everyday behavior. How, uh, how much you eat, what you drink, how active you are, uh, how well you sleep, uh, and also um, uh, your, your relationships and, and kind of how confident you are about, about yourself and, you, and, your, um, and your life. And there's lots of everyday behaviors that, that we have that they both contribute to whether you have a chronic disease, but they also uh, help you manage a chronic disease. Well, if you, if you have diabetes, then it really matters what you eat and how active you are. And, and that's, that's true if you have depression as well, actually, how, how you behave, who you're with, how often, quality of those relationships, what you are drinking, hugely affects um, how well you're able to, to manage that and, and, and come out of it. So our view is, well, wouldn't it be great if we could change our everyday behaviors? And it's a really paradoxical challenge because it, it sounds super simple to change your everyday behavior. And the reason it sounds super simple is, is because uh, we have this, all, all, everyone has this, um, this bias towards, I'm obviously really rational. Obviously, if I decide to do something, then I will do it because I'm a, I'm a rational human being. I'm, I'm fully in control of my own vehicle and you know, I, I, I can do this. And when that doesn't happen, we, um, we tell ourselves stories about why it didn't happen. And it's never because uh, we actually aren't that rational. It's always because, oh, well, something happened and, and because of this, I wasn't able to do it or because of that, it, it, it never happened. Uh, and what's really interesting and, and the heart of this challenge is we, we don't appreciate how much that we've evolved to be, um, uh, to be unconscious in how we work. Nature is really, really frugal. And so what it tries to do, what your brain tries to do is turn everything into, into habits so that you don't have to think about it. Uh, your unconscious mind is, is, is incredibly fast. Uh, it's, 40 or 50 times faster at making a decision than your, than your conscious mind. Uh, so if you think about, oh, well, I, um, I have these particular eating habits. Um, if you decide to try and not eat something, by the time you've you decided to say, well, I, I, I'm not going to do that, I'm not going to have that cake today, your unconscious mind has, has already made the decision to take it, put it in your plate, and, and the unconscious mind's gone home, had a cup of tea and put its feet up before your conscious brain is even really engaged on this thing. So you're fighting this, this losing battle. And from an evolutionary perspective, it, it, like, it makes sense to be lazy, right? Because we, it's not that long ago we were all 
on the African savannah. And if you're there, then it totally makes sense to eat anything in front of you. You don't know when your next meal is going to come from, so you should definitely eat everything in front of you. You should also just have a sit down and have a rest because you, you don't know whether you might have to run away from, from a, a lion or a tiger or something. Um, so there's no point just kind of getting up and, and you know, doing exercise for the sake of it now. We've evolved to try and be as frugal as possible, but we now live in a world of abundance. Many of us live in a world of abundance, not everyone, unfortunately. Um, and that means that the, the unconscious habits and hacks that our mind has evolved to have no longer really function for us. But because we have this bias towards thinking that we're super, super rational human beings, we don't quite realize that, oh, actually, yeah, there's all these problems are really, um, these challenges of why it's so hard to change my behavior really go, uh, go to the heart of what it, what it means to be human and, and, and how we actually have evolved. Yeah, I guess part of that's building your own internal awareness. So I'll give you an example. So New Year's resolutions, great. So I, I started the year, I had a spreadsheet. <laughs> I was counting various nice, metrics in nice. my life. Uh, and so one of the things I wanted to learn was um, how much am I spending every morning going to the coffee shop and buying lunches? Ah, nice, yeah. And so, right, the data person may have said, right, okay, I do that every day. Let's just write it down. And then at the end of the month, you see yeah. that actual yeah, hard yeah, fact. Yeah, you know, yeah. I need to change my behavior, but yeah. I change the behavior for three weeks, but it doesn't become sticky. So I guess that's probably some of the challenges that you might find if you're using the data. How do you make that behavior become sticky or understand that in a longer term? Yes, exactly. We, we're trying to marry together the, the data that's increasingly available about, about your everyday behavior, about your life, with a really good understanding of cognitive science. science. And that means we look at more conscious and cognitive decision-making, but we also look at some of the more unconscious decision-making that we have as well. A lot of our time is, is, is spent working with researchers in, in universities in the UK, in the US, and in Spain to really try and understand that. For example, we did, we did some work on... One of the first things we did actually was some work on alcohol consumption and we use a technique called cognitive bias modification. And what happens here is you, you, if you have a bias towards, towards drinking alcohol, then you, and you have two glasses that, that are the, um, uh, kind of the, the, the same size, one is water, one is alcohol, um, then you'll, you'll actually see the alcohol, the glass of alcohol bigger, and you'll reach towards it more, um, uh, more often than, than the water. And you, and you don't realize this is happening, that this is, this is all going on in your, in your brain. So, you know, obviously you're not kind of seeing the one as bigger than the other, but you're perceiving it more than, than, than the water. And what we did in this, in this training is really simple. On an app on your phone, we had pictures of alcohol and you push that away from you on your smartphone and then you have pictures of tea and water and juice and then you pull that towards you. And that, for the brain, was exactly the same as physically doing it. And that simple, uh, and that simple action, that simple exercise helped retrain that bias in your brain. And for the people that had that bias, which was about 20% of, of, of people, um, it actually really helped to reduce their alcohol consumption by about a, it was about a bottle of wine a week. So they were still drinking, so they were obviously drinking quite a lot, um, but it reduced it by about a bottle of wine a week. So it's quite a substantial reduction. 
And it's those kinds of um, experiments that, that, we, that we are doing and then trying to put those into, into products as well. And as you say, using um, the use of data is fundamental because what's really important is knowing when is the right moment to do this? Do you have that particular bias or do you have, a, do you have another bias? And for that reason, we, we need to have access to as, as really as rich a set of data about you as we can. So I think obviously, I'm going to guess there's a strong link to Telefonica, mobile phone data, all the instrumentation on a phone. So I'm guessing you're using some data sets there and are you blending it with other external data sets? That's right, yeah. We, um, there's probably two, two levels of, of work we do with data. One level is we use big, big Telefonica data sets and of course when we do that there's a proper process that you go through in Telefonica to just um, to ensure that you, you've got a, a, a proper and ethical approach and you're using anonymized data. It's not just like there's data lying around in Telefonica, that's not the way it is, of course. Uh, and you go through that process and you can get access to uh, an anonymized data set and you can uh, do that, that analysis. And yes, we do match that to other data sets as well. Uh, and that's something that um, actually at the moment we're, we're looking to match it to some, to some NHS data. Um, and um, I won't say too much about that now because we need to go through that, that process with a particular trust. Uh, but that's, that's something that's, that's really interesting to us. So we do that analysis. But then we also, the second level is we will actually try and get quite deep data sets as well. And that's usually where we recruit people and we will use a, a phone application and you use all the sensors in the phone to then try and understand what's going on in this, in this person's life. Uh, we had a research project with London School of Economics actually at the beginning of the year to, to do just that, where we were using all the instruments of the phone plus surveys to really understand people's, uh, well, people's happiness and well-being and what was going on in their life and what made them feel good about themselves and what made them feel less good about themselves, just to provide some context. Yeah. So I guess a key aspect of this being successful has got to be how you use and process that data and the ethical side. And I think, well, over the last two years, the public are much more aware of what's happening in this space or what they should be concerned about. Um, and I know that's fundamental to you because I saw you guys present in Ireland. It's a really interesting story and in how you're building that in. So you're going to talk about that later. Yeah, yes. So could you give us an overview of your approach there? Because when we heard you, we thought this is really the first time somebody's been talking about this in depth and it's built in from the start. And mm. it's, it's a great story. Yeah, sure. Let me start with why it's important to us, because I think that's um, that's fundamental. And there's there's... There's three reasons really. One is when we are helping, helping you, helping everyone with, with their health and, and their happiness and their everyday behavior, you're starting to make recommendations and, and judgments that, that start to look quite ethical. For instance, who, who should we privilege when we are making a recommendation? Do, do I privilege Ollie Smith today or Ollie Smith in five years? And who, who's more important in terms of what I make? Is, 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 some, is something that makes me feel good today more important than, than something that makes me feel less good but might be better for my health? How, how do you make that judgment? Also, how do you make judgments about the, um, 
the the Brian that's uh, that's uh, um, like a, like a guy who who has his own wants and desires and needs versus the Brian the father who has responsibilities and how do you make recommendations uh, that that um, privilege those different um, those different versions of you. So that starts to be quite fundamentally ethical. And so we have to think about, well, actually, how do we make those trade-offs and how would we justify that? The second level, I think much more obviously from, from a, a data fest perspective is, well, we really need to access a lot of data to be able to, 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 be able to understand your behavior really well. We need to see as much as we possibly get. And it's a level of, of access that for most people is just gonna be Kind of terrifying, right? Like, what you you'd like to see all my videos, and you like like access to to the uh, the microphone and the camera. I'm like, yeah, all that stuff is relevant. And for people to feel comfortable giving us access to that, we we have to be entirely trustworthy, and they have to believe, okay, yeah, this is this is a company that 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 um, I want to give access um, give access to my data. And there's also a third reason, which is that people, we think it's just important that people have control over this. We think it's something that's intrinsically valuable to, to people. So for those three reasons, we, we very, think very strongly about ethics. And we, we look at it in terms of what are the principles that we, that we should put in place? How do we then instantiate that into our designs and into our technology? And then what's the governance that we wrap around that to ensure that we can uh, hold ourselves to account internally, but also externally. And what does that look like as well? How do we um, uh, how do we have audits of what we're doing? And so today, I'm going to try and give a flavour of how difficult that is, because <laughs> it's really easy to talk about yeah. this kind of stuff, and loads of people have ethical principles. Easy on PowerPoint slides. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's easy on a PowerPoint slide, but when you actually start doing it, you you really get into uh, quite meaningful. Um, challenges and some of those are about uh, the uh, your position as a company and what you might be uh, promising uh, versus aspirations because if you say here are our principles and, and you want them to be as detailed as you as you, as you can be because that gives them more credibility but then your lawyers will say ah but you're making a, a promise here and if you can't actually deliver that then you're you're somehow liable for that so you need to be really careful in in terms of how much you can say and you can't just be aspirational unthinkingly and, th and then there's all sorts of challenges in terms of building it into your product as well where some of the uh, the new design forms that we want to introduce are just not common yet and so we haven't quite worked out how how does that how is it attractive to users and also how does it uh, fulfill obligations we might have legally as well uh, one of the things we like to do is simplify terms and conditions and privacy policies but then there's a risk of, in doing that, are we, are we actually uh, unwittingly hiding things? Because at least with all those long, turgid uh, terms and conditions documents, nothing is hidden. Now, you can't really understand the bloody thing, but uh, someone could say, oh, well, it, it's, it's all there. And so how do you get that balance between comprehensibility and um, just kind of full disclosure, I suppose? Yeah, and actually, in another workshop, I was in yesterday, we were discussing that, and... And there's so much money going into creating apps and solving all these big problems. Why can't we put the focus of technology in, in doing something with T's and C's and yeah. invest in making that a much yeah, clearer yeah, to the yeah. user, yeah. which is a, yeah. a first step. Yeah. Now, now you, you referenced their lawyer's mm -hmm. product. 
Um, and, and in the data land, I think we're guilty of becoming too focused on our bits and bytes and data and algorithms and outputs, and that's all fantastic. Live it every day. But from your perspective, trying to solve some of the world's most difficult problems, you're not just going out to hire hundreds of data scientists and bingo. So give me a flavour of that kind of collaborative uh, team that you've got, the different types of people that are working together to, to try and make this a success. Absolutely. We have, we have a great team. I'm, I, feel, I feel so lucky working with, uh, yes, data scientists. We have quite a few data scientists, uh, cognitive scientists, uh, AI uh, researchers, software developers, and designers, and um, business people as well. And there's, there's about 60 or so of us in the, in the health moonshot now. From I actually I cannot remember how many countries we're from. So it's multidisciplinary and multinational, which is just this beautiful mix. And we always start from the uh, the problem that we're trying to solve for for the individual, and that's fundamental to us. In that you 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 can't simply fall in love with the technology. You have to be falling in love with the problem that the the, the users have, the people have, and then building to to solve that. And that permeates the, the work of the researchers uh, as, as well as it permeates the more product-oriented work. And in fact, we, we have, when we're creating a product, the, the pods that we create include researchers as well, because it's really important to us that the, uh, the functionality of the product is, is as evidence-based as it can be. So some of the work the researchers do is obviously more, more longer term, but other work like bringing in cognitive bias modification, bringing in cognitive behavioural therapy, all those kind of well-evidenced interventions, we bring those into our, into our work. Uh, and the designers and the researchers work really closely together to say, well, how, how can you make that compelling to the user as well as well-evidenced and impactful? So from a, a leadership perspective, how do you get those different diverse groups of people to work together uh, in, a, in a way that helps you move forward? Because I think that's an important lesson to share with people that are starting to tackle this. Yeah. It's challenging. I have to say it is, it is challenging. I wouldn't say we have it absolutely right at the moment. There's a, there's a couple of things that, that we are doing that... that um, we think are helping. So one is, you, it's true. You do just need to give some some space and time to um, for those for those teams to, to form. And one of the aspects that I think is really important is to make sure that there is there is at least one person in any any pod, as we call them, that can act as an interlocutor. Because yes, they're multinational. It's multinational, so people are, are literally speaking different languages. Uh, although we all work in English, but actually, more importantly, people are people are speaking different professional languages, uh, and that's a huge cause of, of misunderstanding. And you need at least one person there who can say, "Ah, ah, you said this, but I think they may have heard this," uh, or, or "You are you are both saying the same thing, but you're you're almost talking past each other because you haven't quite." And work that out yet. So you need a bit of time to get over that, but also you need to be really careful in how you curate the um, the pod that you have, the team that you have. And then the second thing that we are that we're trying to do is is be clearer on when we are 
exploring an idea versus when we are actually creating um, something something tight and concrete. So when when are we tight and when are we loose? Because that really matters in terms of the uh, the dynamic of the team. Because if you're trying to create a product and trying to launch something and then actually the team feel there's too much uncertainty, you can burn a lot of time just kind of going around in circles. And, and I may have thought, oh, well, that was, that was, those are really clear instructions. Those are really clear guidance that I gave it to. And I say, no, no, there's loads of uncertainty here. And we try now be really clear on that these are the requirements. And whilst there might be things that we don't know, this is our best guess on what, what the answer is. So just design to that and build to that. But there are other moments where we say, we'd really like to explore this, this space. Go, um, go explore, go suck up that uncertainty, learn things, and then we'll bring it back together. So we try and be really clear on being exploratory versus being kind of tight and, and um, build focused. There's a balance. Yeah. So, so you said uh, five to seven year program. Mm-hmm. Are you at the point of releasing a product yet? Or how far are you along the journey to the first kind of release? And if you can share, don't yeah, know if yeah, you, no, no, what, of course. what is that product? Of, of course. Uh, one of the uh, ways of working we have is, is we decided not, not to take like the essay crisis uh, method for, for doing a moonshot. Because you could imagine, let's do lots and lots of research for, for four and a half years and then uh, sort of the last six months or so go, okay, now let's start thinking about what this might look like as a product because we just think that's just not going to work. So we, we act a bit like a startup and a bit like a research lab. We, have to, we try and have that mix. And for that reason, we, we have some products that are, that are out and that we're testing. We have a clinical product to help people who are ill, uh, which is for body dysmorphic disorder, which is an anxiety-type disorder. People who, who look at themselves in the mirror and think, wow, I've, I've, I've got, I'm so ugly, my, my nose is huge. And you and I would look at them and think, well, you're, you're, you're perfectly normal, you're lovely, there's nothing wrong with you, but that's not how they perceive themselves. And it's very debilitating. They, 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 they don't leave the house, so they lose their jobs, they lose friends, and so it's an awful... Um, awful disorder and we have a cognitive behavioral therapy application that we've we've created working with massachusetts general hospital in boston and that's just now going through its its second phase clinical trial and we've just come back from talking to the food and drug administration in the u.s uh, which is which is it's great. It's one of the things where I said, "Good news! It's we've never seen anything like this before." So it's a, it's a de novo, you know, first um, first uh, time where you're going to go through this regulatory process because we've never seen something like this before. Bad news: we've never seen anything like this before. So you've got to go. <laughs> so, okay, great. Thank you. I mean, it's it's nice being able to create create the regulation, if you like, and being, being the, the first there to forge that path for digital cognitive behavioural therapy for, for mental health. But it's, but it's not without its challenges. Yeah. Uh, and we also have a, a product in Spain that's still in beta, really, which is much more in the um, everyday well-being and happiness and health space. It's not for people who, who have uh, uh, an illness or, a, or a, a disorder. It's much more... You're, you're great now and how can, we, how can we keep you there? And what we're trying to test is what's a, what's a value proposition that, that allows us to, to be in your life every day, even though you might not have a, 
a health problem per se, but allows us to help you in small ways every day and, and be in your life so that we can, I suppose, put those nudges into place that mean you do stay on, on a path that, that, is, that is healthy. Obviously, hopefully improve in small ways every day for you. But what, what does that look like? And that's, that's actually quite challenging from a design perspective because we keep saying to the designers, okay, these, it's actually aimed at, at young adults in, in Spain. We know that many of them aren't sleeping enough, for instance. Um, but we also know that they don't always massively care about that because there's just other stuff going on in their life that's more important. So how can you solve that problem? Uh, and that's, that's just really hard to design for because you're designing for need, not necessarily desire. Um, so that's a really big challenge and why that we've got this beta product to test different, different ways of doing that. Um, where are we now? So we're about two and a half years into the journey and the intention is that as, as we go, we, we put products out there and we learn and then we try and bring everything together. Um, at every six months or so, we'll, okay, what have we learned? Now what do we do? I think this year we are, uh, because of where we are on our journey and what we've learned, we think we're going to be able to actually start testing from a more commercial perspective as well, uh, which is going to be super interesting. Terrifying, but super interesting. And so, and there's so many questions I want to ask, but we're not, we won't get into this because we've got a conference to go to. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <yeah>. um, <laughs> but uh, let's just have one last one on that, So that, because you left it on a knife edge and I can't <laughs> let that go. Um, so you're doing all this really good stuff, really interesting stuff that is going to help society with cr- chronic illness and then the last word you said was commercial mm. and then in some people's brains a red alert goes you're taking my data you're making it commercial you're going to make money out of it um how are you how are you going to tackle a commercial piece to take the population with you both from a perspective of um taking them with you but also letting people know that this is going to happen proactively rather than they discover in a an instant a few months down the line this yeah is yeah 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 there's there's a couple of approaches and it, it depends where uh, what kind of need someone has and if someone already has a, a an, an illness a, a chronic disease some identified diagnosed uh, disease then the route that we're we're going to be going down is is more of a how do we build into the, the health system that, that um, operates in a particular country which means in in the United Kingdom we, we'd obviously be trying to work through an NHS uh, model and working with um, providers there so commissioners would be paying for um, what, we're, what we're doing um, in the US that would look different it would be more of an insurer based model but whenever we're going into a clinical setting of course it needs to be needs to be proven so we need to go through a regulatory process hence the food and drug administration conversations that we're going through so it's important that you go through that 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 right process and you have to work with with the health system that that, that you find it as, as you find it and then the second route is more consumer oriented and the more preventative side and there there's an important intention that, that we have there in terms of the business model where we think that consumers will have to pay for this themselves 
we think that a model that's advertising led just doesn't work for this. It's really important that we're able to say, Brian, we work for you. Uh, and you, you pay us and, and therefore we work for you. Because if we say, well, we offer this to you, but actually we're paid for by, by another company, uh, and let's say that's a fast food company, you may start to question, who are we really working for? How good are these recommendations for my health? And that's where our, our ethics strategy comes in because it, it, it's important that we think about how do we build trust? Uh, and that, is, uh, that goes to the business model as much as it goes to, well, how do we, how do we deal with your data? How do we explain what the recommendations are, are, are doing, what the algorithms are doing and how, and how they got to their recommendations? So that, that's, the, that's the approach we're trying to take. So where, where often people say some of the smartest minds in data are just focused on optimizing advertising, you guys are putting them actually onto good societal health problems. Yeah, 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 yeah. Ex- exactly right, exactly right. Okay, so uh, to, to wrap up, I wanted to move away from that uh, area of your life to more about where you started. So by trade, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're not, you weren't a tech person in university, you were studying no. your Bachelor of Arts in Politics, Philosophy and Economics. Yes. So, um, in summary, what's your journey from doing that and then going into this moonshot tech, tech healthcare, major challenges around the planet piece? How did how did that journey go? Oh no, great question. How did that go? I when I left university, I initially went into to consulting, management consulting, and that was really great training in how you uh, how you apply strategic thinking to, to business and how you um, structure your thinking and structure analysis. What I found in, during that time was, was that I wasn't, uh, wasn't that passionate about some of the more everyday problems that, that businesses faced. And what I really liked was the societal challenges and some of the, I suppose, the questions of politics that, I, that, I'd, that I'd been learning at university, studying at university. And as a result, I moved from consulting to, to the civil service. And, and I was lucky enough to, to work for the Prime Minister Strategy Unit when Tony Blair was Prime Minister. And I just loved it because I started working on police reform, housing policy, uh, um, energy policy, all these really super interesting uh, areas. And, and I just thought, this, this is what I want to do. I want to be part of solving big societal problems. And that's what really excites me. Uh, so I did that for a couple of years and then I moved to the Department of Health uh, in, the, in the UK, which I never thought I'd do. My, my dad's a doctor and I, for some reason that had not given me a huge love of, of, of health. I thought, I'm not gonna work on health policy. But I loved it, I love it still because it's so, it, it's really important in everyone's life. Everyone can, can understand it and appreciate it. And there is such opportunity and scope for, um, for change. Uh, and I experienced um, how you make policy in government. I ran tobacco control um, for a period of time and worked a lot in public health. Uh, and then I moved to a, um, a large charity called Guys and St. Thomas's, which is, which is an endowed charity. So I, I, was, I was spending their money, which is a very privileged thing to be doing, and investing it in, in innovation in, in hospitals, in um, uh, GPs, in social care, really trying to say how can we 
how can we improve the health system, the NHS, uh, and how can we therefore improve people's lives? And during that time, I found myself increasingly frustrated, I suppose, with, with, uh, with the pace of change. And, and I could see that technology is going to be a really big part of how we, how we make a step change improvement in, in the health system, because we have all these challenges that, that are coming forward and it's just, just not good enough. And we should all be frustrated why it's not just, just not good enough at the moment. And I saw that technology was part of the answer, but that the health system was, was struggling to, to put it into place. And therefore, I was, I was looking for a role that, that was on the other side of the fence and actually on the technology side, because I thought, well, I know a bit about how health systems work, particularly in the UK, but a bit of other health systems. And I'd love to be able to uh, be part of developing technology that improves people's lives and then bringing it into people's lives and bringing it into health systems as well. So I was super fortunate that at that time in 2016, Telefonica Alpha had just been set up and uh, my, the guy who's my boss, Oliver Harrison, uh, was, was, was setting up a team and, and I joined. And feel hugely privileged to be part of this, this unit that's got, as I said, multidisciplinary people, people at the top of their game and who, who challenge me every day, who are also so kind and patient with me as they explain how AI works and you know this is what coding is. And, um, and that they're, they're great at doing that. And then we have this, this patient capital backing us in Telefonica to allow us to actually really try and fix this hard problem of behavior change, which is what, as I say, it sounds simple to do, but it's actually really, really hard because of, because of how we've all evolved. Yeah, great, fantastic journey. And uh, sounds like it's gonna to continue to yeah. very interesting places. Now, where can people find out more? So you guys are obviously well underway. Do you have a website, a blog, any YouTube that people can catch up and, see, and get into more detail? We do have a website. Um, I don't, I can't remember the URL, which is really bad. Because like everyone else now, I would just type into Google, Telefonica Alpha and, and yeah, and, yeah and, and, and you can find out um, information there. And, um, um, we're all on LinkedIn as well and kind of always always happy to get in touch with people and um, to, to learn more and if anyone's ever in Barcelona which is where we're based you know more than welcome to, to pop by uh, Torre Telefonica and, and come and see what we do Fantastic well thank you so much for taking the time out to, to do pleasure. the podcast Real pleasure also coming to DataFest really looking forward to your presentation this afternoon and uh, I know it'll go fantastically well thank you very much great to meet you thank you Cheers, Ollie.